And then page 869, the back of the red hymnal, we'll read a couple of answers together from the shorter catechism for our catechism lesson this evening. We'll read the end of Matthew chapter 3, the baptism of Jesus. Here is a a passage which very clearly at least puts before us the truth of the doctrine of the Trinity, even if it doesn't explain it explicitly. uh, We see it very clearly here before us in Matthew 3 with the Father and the Son and uh, the Holy Spirit uh, present, the baptism of Jesus. And so we'll use this. It's a bit of a launching point. We'll look at several texts tonight, but just wanted to read read this to have it in our minds. Matthew 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Grass withers. And the flower fades. The word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Questions five and six of the shorter catechism. Let's say the answers together. From page 869 in the red hymnal. Question five. Are there more gods than one? There is but one only, the living and true God. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Tempted to have a little fun before the service began and pass this sermon off to one of the council members, but I decided against it. Difficult, isn't it, to explain the Trinity and uh, to try to, just like last week, we're talking about the doctrine of God and what is, what is God like. Well, we don't want it to be merely uh, a, a, something of head knowledge, it needs to be transformative kind of knowledge. The Trinity itself, because of the, the way that we understand it, you need to use certain kinds of, of academic categories to explain what we mean by it, and yet it also is something that changes our life. It is really a very practical doctrine once we begin to unpack it, something that does give change to our life. One author, thinking about this challenge of explaining the Trinity, says it like this. Explain the Trinity? We can't even begin. Uh, 
We can only accept it, a mystery disclosed in Scripture. It should be no surprise that the triune being of God baffles our minds. We should be surprised if we could understand the nature of our creator. Now, there's, a, there's something of truth that I like in that, but, but I do think he, sells it, he stops a little bit short. There's one author that I think captures it a little bit better when he says this. The Trinity is a mystery in which we are taken by the hand and gradually led into the light. So it's a, it's a mystery, but not one in which we are kept in the dark. Because to commune with God and to know him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a mystery in which we are taken by the hand and gradually led into the light. And so the pursuit of God in his word, the desire to know him and understand something about him. Remember, we will never totally comprehend God. We can't wrap our minds fully around all that he is. But the understanding of God that comes from his word is true. So there's a difference between truly understanding God and fully and completely understanding God. And oftentimes you can drive a wedge between those two things or, or uh, you can say, well, because you can't fully understand God, you can't understand him at all. That's not true. We understand God truly, if not fully. So the doctrine of the Trinity is very simply that God is one in essence and three in person. The Bible is very clear. There is only one God. There is only one God. We find that affirmed all over the place. Isaiah chapter 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. Later on in, verse, in chapter 45, I am God, there is no other. Isaiah 48, my glory I will not give to another. So God is very clear, revealing this truth. He is the only God. He alone is God. There is one who is like him, who has this divine nature. And so whatever we know about God beyond that, it can't contradict that truth. We know that God is not a God of confusion. God never contradicts himself. God always says, uh, all that is true, and he never changes. The Trinity, then, is a doctrine which affirms that all of the persons of the Godhead have a unity of essence. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are truly and fully God, co-equal, co-eternal. Jesus uh, teaches this all over the place in his earthly ministry. The Gospel of John is one of the, the places where he talks about it the most, in John 1, of course, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And there we have something of, of a, a very both clear and also a mysterious revelation about the Trinity. The Word was both with God and God himself. And then it says, all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And so very clearly in John chapter 1, we know that this word, Jesus Christ, he himself is not created. Because it says, without him, nothing was made that has been made. So anything that is created was created with him and by him. So all of those who would say that Jesus Christ is the, 
the first created being. God the Son is the first created being. It's direct, in direct contradiction to John chapter 1. But there we also have that affirmation that he himself is divine. The word was God. But then in some ways, in some way distinct from the Father. The word was with God. Later on in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. In chapter 8, Jesus said, says, Truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. A very clear affirmation of his deity. Right after this, the Jews picked up stones to throw at him because in their mind he was blaspheming. He was being very clear in showing who he was. The Apostle Paul uh, very clearly affirms the deity of Jesus Christ when he says in Titus 2.13, He says, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He assigns to Jesus the Greek word theos, God. In 2 Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter says, Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and forever. So Peter says, to whom do you ascribe all of the glory? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ deserves all of the glory that God the Father deserves. Because they share in this divine essence. The Holy Spirit is shown to us to be divine as well. In Acts chapter 5, a very famous story in the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira try to make some offering to the early church. And it's given as sort of all of what they've received through this uh, other business deal that they have made. But they lie and keep some back for themselves. And so Peter says this in Acts 5.3. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. But Peter says, you've lied to the Holy Spirit which means you have lied to God. I was thinking about this this week, and Matthew 12, to me, is really a a very interesting affirmation of the deity of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this. This is when he's speaking of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which is another topic that we don't have time to unpack tonight. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Jesus very mysteriously says, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And that if we can blaspheme the Holy Spirit, clearly he is God, he is divine. And then he even furthers it by saying, people who speak a word against the Son of Man they will be forgiven. But if you speak against the Holy Spirit, you will not. Of course, Jesus isn't saying that the Holy Spirit is more divine than he is, but showing certainly at least that they are co-equal in their divinity. So three persons, one essence, one substance, and we see that divinity ascribed to these three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's also a mutual indwelling 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit communing with each other. There's a love that they share. There's a, there's a perfect relationship, communion that they enjoy. Jesus speaks about that in John chapter 17. All three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have the divine perfections of God. Omnipresence, omniscience, and omnipotence. The Father is taught to be the fount of all things. That's what we we read in the Belgic Confession, Article 8. He eternally begets the Son, and He sends the Spirit. We primarily attribute the, the, the plan, the decree of God, the mission of redemption to the Father. It doesn't mean that only He contrived that mission, but we think of Him as the fount of all things. We think of the Son as our Savior, our Redeemer, the one who is eternally begotten of the Father. Now there's a mystery. He is begotten and he is eternally begotten. In other words, there was never a time when Jesus was not the Son of God. That goes against our own human experience, right? Boys are born to their fathers. They grow up. And uh, some of them have their own sons, and then those sons grow up. And so there there comes a time where uh, a boy becomes a man, a man becomes a father. But with God the Son and God the Father, there never was a time where God the Father was not Father and God the Son was not the Son. Think of it this way. Jesus is called the manifestation of the glory of God, the imprint of his nature, And if there was a time when Jesus was not, that would mean that there was a time that God did not have his glory. If Jesus is the glory of God, then whenever Jesus was not, that would mean that the Father did not have his glory. God never changes. God never becomes more glorious. Thus, Jesus has always been eternally begotten. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Spirit's work is to uh, apply the work of Christ to believers. So the Son accomplishes redemption. The Spirit applies the benefits of redemption to individual hearts. He makes dead hearts live. He illuminates our minds in the Word of God and in the Gospel. He kindles our emotions towards the service and the love of God. He comforts us in our affliction. He is always working in us, and he is always with us. God, eternal, three persons who share this divine nature. The Trinity is a vitally necessary doctrine. In a little bit, we'll get to how it's a, a, an amazingly practical doctrine, but it's a vitally necessary doctrine. One of the clearest things that we see is why the Trinity is so necessary is because without it, we lose our redemption. You see that the whole plan of salvation and everything about our redemption is so intricately tied to the doctrine of the Trinity. The Father is the fount of all things. The Son is the one who accomplishes our redemption. The Spirit is the one who applies that work and and makes it come to life in dead hearts. The book of Hebrews says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
And without the Trinity, we would be forced to appear before God without a mediator, without Christ's blood, without his forgiveness, without the righteousness that he gives to us. Remember in our beautiful Heidelberg Catechism, where it says our Redeemer must be both God and man, and unfolds all of the reasons as to why that is. Man must pay for man's sin. As God, he must be able to shoulder the weight uh, that he was given as the mission to achieve our redemption. Our Redeemer must be both God and man. And then without the Holy Spirit, we would be forever trapped in our sin. There would be no hope of spiritual life, no hope of understanding the things of God. Remember, the only way that we understand is by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says that no man can say, or we we read elsewhere in Scripture, no man can say that Christ is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. No hope of salvation, no hope of comfort, no hope of Christian virtue, the fruit of the Spirit. All of the virtues that we show forth are by the Spirit. Thomas Watson says this, Without the Trinity, the plank is taken away by which we get to heaven. How do we get to heaven? By the Spirit, or by, by the Trinity. The Father decrees it, the Son accomplishes it, the Spirit applies it. How is the doctrine of the Trinity most commonly opposed? Well, Many people will say that since God is one, then to say that he is, that there are three persons is contradictory. So, of course, Muslims and Jews would uh, say this uh, as their own defense. They would say the Trinity uh, contradicts the fact that God is one. But again, this becomes an enormous problem because it takes away the message of redemption. And so when you're left with a, a God who is one, and there's a oneness not only to his, to his uh, substance, but also to his personhood, then you need to appear before this holy God without a mediator and without the comfort of the Spirit. And so what happens essentially is a, an effort to achieve righteousness on your own. Romans chapter 10, Paul says this in regards to... Uh, his Jewish brothers and sisters. He says, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. They sought to establish their own. Muslims believe that on judgment day, What it will come down to is your good deeds outweighing your bad deeds. And that is all you will have to appear before God. So you lose redemption. And of course you ignore all the places in scripture where it teaches this clearly. There's another major error and it's those who deny the deity of Christ. They say that God or Jesus Christ is a God or he is some kind of special uh, created being. But he is not himself God. We read, of course, in Colossians chapter 2, in Christ, the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we read that God was manifest in 
the flesh. Jesus says in John 10, I and my Father are one. When Jesus forgives sins in the Gospels, people say, who has power to forgive sins but God alone? One pastor puts it this way. Is God the Father the adequate object of faith? Is he to be believed in? So is his Son, John 14. Does adoration belong to God the Father? So it does to the Son. Let all the angels of God worship him. How sacrilegious, therefore, is the heretic who would rob Christ of his divinity, the best flower of his crown. Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me. There are some who would say that the Holy Spirit also is not a divine person. He's just kind of a force. But that's not the way that Jesus talks about him when he says he's going to send the Spirit. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, Jesus says, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It would make no sense if the Holy Spirit himself were not divine. And Jesus would say, it's better that I go so that he may come. You wouldn't talk about just a force in those ways. He says, I will send him to you. When the spirit of truth comes, Jesus says, he will guide you into all truth. So there are some of the errors that we see in regards to the Trinity. And certainly true that we must affirm this doctrine. We see it taught all throughout Scripture. There are so many passages that talk about it and talk about it clearly. But, we bring it around to the practical side. Here's the first point, is this. That it is a doctrine which must be believed because it's something that we cannot arrive at by our reason alone. God reveals it clearly in his word. And so the first responsibility for us is to say, God reveals it. We must believe it. Does it go beyond our ability to fully comprehend? Yes. Are there times where we can get confused about this doctrine? Yes. But it is our responsibility to believe it because it is so clearly taught in God's word. Thomas Boston says this, Believe this doctrine of the trinity of persons in the unity of essence. The trinity is purely an object of faith. The plumb line of reason is too short to fathom this mystery. But where reason cannot wade, their faith may swim. There are some truths in religion that may be demonstrated by reason, as that there is a God. But the trinity of persons in the unity of essence is wholly supernatural and must be believed by faith. This sacred doctrine is not against reason, but above it. This is of divine revelation and must be adored with humble believing. We cannot be good Christians without the firm belief of the Trinity. It's something that God has revealed. And so our responsibility is first to believe it and to accept it because God has revealed it for our good. But then what what Thomas Boston says is uh, we must worship this God who is triune. We must adore humbly because what you cannot understand fully You must worship with adoration. So uh, we come to God and we confess, we cannot fully comprehend this truth about you. And so our response to that is that we will worship you and we will adore you. 
John Newton says this, Scripture teaches us to attend to this doctrine, but it does not require us to either comprehend or explain it. And so to come to God to understand that this is who he is and who he has revealed himself to be is one of the the, the main reasons why we come humbly adoring God because we know that this is a mystery that we'll never fully comprehend. But if there are three persons in the Godhead, then we must give equal reverence to all of them. And sometimes we can get in this bad habit of Uh, Thinking that we worship the Father alone, we are to worship the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We are to give equal reverence to the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We are to obey the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We are to worship the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Jesus says, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent him. Hebrews chapter 1, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Jesus is not just an angel. He is God, and he is to be adored and worshipped. We are to pray to the Father and the Son and the Spirit. John Newton says, if the Lord Jesus is indeed God over all, blessed forever, how can I possibly think or speak of him too highly? Newton says, well, we must come to him, we must adore him, we entrust all that we are to him because he is God. We cannot speak of him too highly, we cannot honor him too much. We could say that equally about all the persons of the Godhead. And then, uh, if you think on this doctrine and you say, you know, it's still, it's still so much of it is in the, kind of the mystery category for me. If you can't, you feel like you can't comprehend this doctrine, if you get frustrated with wanting to know more but you can't seem to learn more, make it your endeavor to burn for this God even if you can't talk for him. To live for him and to put this doctrine on display because uh, if we think about the doctrine of the Trinity, believe it to be true, accept it as from God's word, think about how practical of a doctrine it is as it feeds into your everyday life. You take away the doctrine of the Trinity, you lose redemption, you have this terrifying reality of appearing before God without a mediator and without a comforter. Then you have the, the Trinity and what do you have? You have a loving father, a a, a father who loves you, who is working all things together for your good, a father who sent his son for you. You have a son who came from heaven itself, who left heaven's glory to come and to live for you and to die on the cross for you and has been raised and is interceding for you. You have a Holy Spirit that was sent to you to guide you into all truth, to uh, create in you 
the kinds of, of virtues, the kinds of graces that you will need to live for God and his glory. To believe these things and to embrace these things is to embrace uh, that which no other belief system, no other religion can even come close to having. This is what sets Christianity apart. A God who is one and three and who is in perfect communion and love with himself and that love flows outwards towards his people in a way that so perfectly coalesces with all of our needs. If the Trinity is real, you must believe that it will show in your life. To have a loving father, to have a son who gave himself, to have a spirit who is always with us. What a glorious truth this is. Then, if this is the Trinity, co-equal, three co-equal and co-eternal persons existing in divine communion, then it teaches us that we too, as those made in the image of God, that we were made for relationships of love as well. What does it mean to be human, biblically speaking? Well, one of the main things is it means we are in relationships that experience love. Because we were made for that. Because that is what God always has been and always will be. Without uh, the universe being created, before this universe was created, God didn't need anything because He, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they were already perfectly enjoying the love and the glory and the fellowship that they have had from all eternity. And that was perfectly fulfilling to God. Just so, we, as those who were made in the image of God, were made for relationships of love. First and foremost, to be found, to be reconciled to God and found to be in communion with Him. And we are also made to long for uh, communion and fellowship and love with each other. It's why we were made. It's how God wired us to be. This is who God is. He is one, he is three, he is eternal, he is glorious, he is loving, he is filled with grace and mercy. Remember all of those things. And finally, remember that this God, so powerful, so stunning, so awe-inspiring, so worthy of our adoration and our worship, he is the one who is working perfectly at every moment to keep his people to, to fashion his people for eternity, and to bring them home. This is the way that the Apostle Paul is always praying. He's praying in this, this Trinitarian kind of way to show us how practical this doctrine is. It's such a practical doctrine. Because when you think about the way that each person of the Godhead fulfills this perfect role in our redemption, that if you didn't have the Father, if you didn't have the Son, if you didn't have the Spirit, it would all fall apart. But nonetheless, we have them. And so he prays this way. Paul says things like this. I bow my knees before the Father, so that according to the riches of his glory, he may, be, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I bow my knees before this glorious Father, 
that through the Spirit he may strengthen you in your inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith so that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You see, Paul's conception of all of these things, which is right and which is true, is that you need the Father, you need the Son, you need the Holy Spirit to know his love, to understand something of God, to live for him, to be strengthened, and to give him glory. How wonderful it is that this is who our God is. He is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even where we cannot understand uh, or comprehend fully, we adore humbly and we accept it as from his word, as something that changes our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you and we praise you for these deep things and we know that we, we we seek to know them and understand them, grasp them more fully. And so we ask for your grace that we may know them and accept these things, believe them as from your words, taught so clearly in your word. Uh, It is irrefutable and it is uh, so majestically revealed to us. So give us the strength and the power to believe and to live in light of it, that it may be a comfort that we can know you, Father, as loving, that we can know you, Jesus Christ, God the Son, as our Savior, our Redeemer. Holy Spirit, that we may know you as our comforter, the one who uh, brings the benefits of Christ to our very hearts and lives. So we thank you and we praise you, our great God, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen.